0: Okay, good news, we're back on track with the booklet, page 12, I know that was a treacherous byway on Pilgrim's Progress out into the slough of despond, but now we're back again. Why was I ever born, Job's Lament, chapter 3 of Job. let's pray again. What a joy, what a delight it is, O Lord, to sit at your feet and to be instructed with your wonderful words of life. Father, it is you that teach us through the revelation that you have given us in your Son, and it is you, Holy Spirit, who have the the task of opening our hearts to be receptive and then to writing those wonderful words upon our inner person, on our hearts, that we might carry them with us wherever we go, that we might be motivated, that our perceptions might be uh, sharpened through the lenses of your word. Uh, We are part of a church that prizes the scriptures and the Instruction of the scriptures, both in public worship and preaching, but also in teaching and discipling from house to house. And uh, certainly you give us this opportunity. And uh, I am so thankful for the the privilege to uh, speak to these brothers and sisters and to see on their faces the eagerness with which they want to receive the word as it is implanted. And and so bless us. Uh, There's so many things that we could talk about, think about, that are germane to our study, and then that spin off logically as implications. Help me to be disciplined in in staying to the main path so that we can uh, use the limited time that we have to good advantage, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. When a soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, what does it sound like? It sounds like crying, Uh, not only perhaps shedding tears, but it sounds like the cry with the voice from the depths of the heart. Now, we're good complainers. That's part of our fallen nature. And uh, so when we talk about somebody complaining, that's usually a negative assessment. They either are spoiled and they're complaining where there's nothing to complain about, or their whining is way out of proportion to whatever is going on. You know, we see it in our children. Um, they fall down. If nobody's close at hand, you see them from the other room. They get up, they look around, see if there's an audience. They get up and they play. They look around, they see mom or dad. <laughs> That's uh, overdoing the complaint. And so, we might sort of think that, particularly for Christians, I mean, we have all of these wonderful uh, faith principles, and that should somehow be a narcotic that takes away our pain or or renders invalid our complaint. Uh, so, maybe we want to adopt the, uh, the older term, lamentation, just in our own minds to distinguish it from... Complaint. I mean, basically they, they mean the same thing, but if, if complaint is trivial, a lament is when you really do have griefs to bear and must express them. And God, as he does with everything, he gives us the tools. Um, it's a little different context uh, of repentance, but at the end of Hosea, God tells his people, as he calls them to repent, he says, come back to me and say this. And he gives them the words to repent with. Well, here, God is saying, when you're crushed and you're hurting, lament, and, and I'm going to give you language of lamentation. And of course, a number of the Psalms are laments. And that's what we have here. In our own contemporary culture, although it's not true of every subculture in our society, for the most part, mourning is understated. Uh, emotions are kept under control. Uh, but that's not so in other societies, and it's certainly not true of the ancient world of the Bible. In the Old Testament, mourning is described as, by many outward activities, Joseph tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth, and weeps in Genesis 15 at the death of his father. David tears his clothes and puts dust on his head. Tamar puts ashes on her head, tears her robe, and then puts, on her, hand, uh, puts her hand on her head and weeps aloud. Mourning, lamentation, is symbolized by sackcloth and ashes. And fasting often goes along with the expression of grief. Mourners sit in the dust. Uh, sometimes even heads are shaved as symbolic of deep mourning. And so there's no understatement here. If you're hurting, if you're grieving, everybody knows it. And that's considered perfectly appropriate. So it isn't surprising, is it, that Job, having experienced what he has, would express himself initially in a lament, a cry of sorrow and loss. Why was I ever born? And that's a rhetorical question. He's not asking for an answer. He knows the answer. I should have never been born. Now, before we get to the text of chapter 3 in the Lamentation, let's just remind ourselves of Job's initial response to this devastating, uh, crushing set of calamities. Uh, The physical and the family afflictions do not break him down initially. He's still willing to praise the name of the Lord God. Chapter 1, verse 20, Then Job arose, He tears his robes and shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshipped. And he acknowledges that he came into the world from his mother's womb naked. He will leave under the same conditions. But then he says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Later, after a second round of affliction that concentrates on his own body, He resists his wife's desolate cry uh, to curse God and die. Chapter 2, verse 10, But Job said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Then Job's three friends arrived. We'll say more about them in our next talk. But just to note verse 11 of chapter 2. Now when Job's three friends heard of all of this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. They came to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. So here we have other mourners joining in the lamentation as they see the suffering of Job. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven and they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights and no one spoke a word to him for they saw that his suffering was very great. Initially, And maybe throughout, Job's friends really did intend to bless Job, to help him. They're sympathetic, and they want, uh, and they wait in silence for the appropriate opportunity to speak to Job and even to confront him. Job's initial complaint, as we have it here in chapter 3, sets off the debate that takes up the great bulk of the rest of the book between Job and his comforters. The seven days, sitting there in silence, watching Job in his agony, um, they sit there with a kind of a pitying uh, and perhaps even accusing silence. um, And that finally provokes Job to speak. Perhaps he's had time in these intervening hours and days to think things over. Um, again, isn't that common in our experience? Something bothers us, but then we think about it for a while, and it bothers us even more. It hurts, but we pick the scab a little bit, and it hurts even more. So you can imagine the psychology of Job as he tries to go through his mind things that he will let later express. Why did this happen? What have I done? I mean, again, he's a man of faith. Probably the first thing he thought of is is God chastening me? And he, no, well, what about this? And so forth. And then he's watching his friends, and 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 eventually, out of him wells this complaint, this lamentation. And in it, he curses the day of his birth, knowing as he does that God is the author of that day. But like Adam before him, Job knows how to use indirect accusations. Adam said, the woman that you gave me. Job curses the day of his birth. So, I'm just going to read through And I mentioned yesterday Robert Alter's translation, and just for the fun of it, so you can hear perhaps something a little different, So don't try to read along here, chapter three, just listen. I'm not going to comment on it a lot, try to draw out some of the meaning, but here again, you know, you could go verse by verse and work on things, but we'll just kind of see the basic headings. So, the first stanza, if you will, of this poem of Lamentation is verses one through ten, and here... Job expresses the desire or the wish that he had never been born. Afterward, Job opened his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spoke up and he said, Annul the day that I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. That day, let it be darkness. Let God above not seek it out, nor brightness shine upon it. Let darkness, death's shadow, foul it. Let a cloud mass rest upon it. Let day gloom dismay it. That night, let murk overtake it. Let it not join in the days of the year. Let it not enter the number of months. Oh, let that night be barren. Let it have no song of joy. Let the day curses exit those ready to rouse Leviathan. Let its twilight stars go dark. Let it hope for day in vain and let it not see the eyelids of dawn for it did not shut the belly's doors to hide wretchedness from my eyes better that I had never been born powerful expression of lamentation it is just interesting there this kind of a sidebar that he curses the the day of his birth, and the day of his conception. The whole discussion of abortion and pro-life and what's the status of the the baby in the womb, Um, here Job understands that his personal identity, what is supposedly so sacrosanct to an individual, I am my own person, and Job says That which was born one day was conceived on a certain day. And from that moment of conception, he is Job, perhaps unnamed and unseen, but he is the one that is now living out his mature life. So any attempt in some arbitrary, you know, psychological or or biological way to say that, that we don't mark the beginning of an individual human life from the point of conception, is again contrary to even a passing comment in the Word of God. He uh, he thinks about the natural joy. Um, think back to when we realized that Sherry was pregnant with our firstborn. Um, it was a wonderful day. Uh, I mean, I, I know there are women who find out they're pregnant and they say, oh no, for all kinds of reasons. But most of us rejoice in the news that a child has been conceived and we cherish that child even during those nine months more or less of of preparation. And then on the day of the birth, uh, mom's exhausted and dad's hanging out, handing out cigar. Oh no. Anyway, it's a time of great joy. And so when when Job says, my life has now become so miserable that I want all that light to turn into darkness, I want all that joy to be erased from the consciousness of myself and of everyone else. It's a a pretty bitter expression. Then he goes on to, if I had to be born, better that I was born Dead. So in verses 11 and following, why did I not die from the womb, from the belly come out and breathe my last? Why did knees welcome me, and why breasts that I should suck? For now I would lie and be still, with sleep and no repose, with kings and the counselors of earth who build ruins for themselves, or with princes. Possessors of gold who fill their houses with silver, or like a buried, a buried stillborn, I be like babes who never saw light. When the wicked cease their troubling and there the weary repose, all together the prisoners are tranquil. They hear not the taskmaster's voice. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free of his master. So miserable that if he could have just collapsed a lifespan into either death in the womb or from the womb to the grave immediately. There's a uh, startling image in Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot, where he envisions a grave digger reaching up with forceps to deliver a child from a woman and carry it straight into the grave. It's disturbing, but that's what Job is asking for. Take me from the womb to the grave so that I won't experience all of this sorrow that I have undergone now. I mean, if you need a gut punch or two, Job's feeling it and now he's giving it back to us. See, we don't intellectualize this kind of a passage. We have to feel the brutality of the language. Be crushed. That's how he communicates his grief, his sorrow, to those who will listen to him. And then finally, failing that, if he has to live, it is that now God would end his life. Don't let this carry on any further. Bad enough that I've, I've experienced this sorrow for seven days. Now take my life. So verse 20 and following. Why give light to the wretched and life to the deeply embittered who wait for death in vain? Dig for it more than for treasure who rejoice at the tomb are glad when they find the grave to a man whose way is hidden and God has hedged him about for before my bread, my moaning comes. And my roar pours out like water. For I feared a thing, it befell me. What I dreaded came upon me. I was not quiet, I was not still, I had no repose, and trouble came. So, having affirmed the wisdom and the knowledge of God, Job can, in the next breath, Express this deep, deep sorrow. Now we'll we'll talk about what this means for us in a few minutes. But but notice that um, when the curtain of sorrow comes down, and obviously you know we have a lot of little hurts and irks and difficulties, and we we can kind of step around the shadow or move on or adapt or improvise or overcome. But but for many of you. You have or you will experience sorrow so great that it's like the curtain, the blackout curtain comes completely down and you can't see any light at all. And that's what Job is experiencing. Unbelievers often express the desire to die because they want they think death is the end of their troubles. You know, they have no view of what comes after death. And so they just want to be released, you know, people suffering from terminal illnesses and things like that. If they're a non-believer, they might even embrace euthanasia. Put me out of my misery. And that seems to be uh, the only perspective right now that Job has upon death. It will be release from suffering and rest from turmoils uh, that he is experiencing in his present. There's no reflection at all here about what might come after death, uh, whether it be eternal blessedness or eternal condemnation and punishment. And as I say, this is a perspective that's shared by many, many sufferers, especially those who don't have the hope of the gospel. And... uh, This is one of the toughest places in which we have to witness, isn't it? When you have to tell somebody that thinks that death will release them, that death will only open a door to even greater sorrow and grief and loss under the eternal condemnation of God. That's really, really bad news. But if we don't tell people that, then we can't also tell them, but whoever believes on the Son has passed from death to life and has the prospect of eternal life and blessedness with God. And we've all failed, starting with me, we've kept our mouths shut in the face of the death of a non-believer because we didn't want to make, and we know this is but we tell ourselves, I don't want to make a bad situation worse. Or maybe I don't want them to get mad at me and then they won't be friends with me anymore in the 15 minutes they have left to live. The good news isn't good news unless the bad news registers with us. And certainly as we stand on the brink of death, the best thing that we can do for a suffering non-believer is to tell them the truth. And it takes real courage. But the good news is that of eternal life. Well, Job's going to see a glimpse of that in a minute. But right now, he just sees death as a blessed end. And as we see then, as the book unfolds, uh, from his vantage point in redemptive history, he only has the most vague of intimations of immortality. Job's really, really early in the progress of redemption and in the process of the revelation of redemption. So, you know, we can look at Job from our vantage point and say, come on, Job, don't be so hard. But, But he had to go on what he had at the time. And as I say, he just gets glimpses. And those glimpses come later on and you know I'm kind of jumping ahead now, but but uh, if we contrast his bitter sorrow here, so that's the dark, dark gloom of grief and loss, and then there are these fleeting but brilliant flashes of light that come later, and they're they're kind of buried in the great. So I want to jump ahead and draw your attention first to chapter 14 and then to chapter 19 of Job. Uh, Chapter 19 will be familiar to you, uh, even out of context, uh, maybe less so chapter 14. So if you want to turn over there uh, for a moment. Now, despite the brevity, the the trouble, the uncertainty of life, yet there is something beyond what appears to be the finality of death. Verse 1 of chapter 14, man who is born of woman is few of days and full of trouble. He comes out like a flower and withers. He flees like a shadow and continues not. You've heard that at funerals. I use that at funerals frequently. The brevity of life. And again, James says the same thing. Don't say tomorrow I'll go here or there, do this and that. Your life is like a vapor. So that idea that life is short is expressed throughout the scripture again and again. We're like a flower that grows up, flourishes, and withers. We flee like a shadow. Um. And we don't really know from the vantage point of life under the sun what the difference is, for example, between the death of an animal and the death of a human being. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 says, For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same, judged from this side and our perception. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. The man has no advantage over the beasts for all all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Judged as a biological reality, death is death. The cessation of all the bodily functions, sometimes in succession, organs begin to shut down, and then we are gone. And, and from this side of the curtain, we have no idea what might be out there. Does the spirit of man arise upward, and does the spirit, the breath of the beast, go down to the earth? Because of the uncleanness of us as fallen human beings, there is no earthly hope of acquittal the clock is ticking and there is no rest for the wicked look at verse 3 of chapter 14 do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me into judgment with you who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean thing there is no one since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass Look away from him and leave him alone that he may enjoy, like a hired hand, his day. So, from Job's vantage point, death certainly is a judgment from God. He's got a good theology. The wages of sin is death. And maybe understood as God's punishment, that's the end of the story. And yet, there may be hope. And here he uses the imagery of the sprouting again of a tree at the scent of water. Verse 7, for there is hope for a tree, if it be cut down, that it will sprout again, and that its shoots will not cease, though its root grow old in the earth and its stump die in the soil, yet at the scent of water it will bud and put out branches like a young plant. Again, our limited sight leads us to one seemingly inevitable conclusion. Verse 10, A man dies and is laid low. Man breathes his last, and where is he? As waters fail from a lake and a river wastes away and dries up, we've all seen bodies of water evaporate streams in the summertime, so a man lies down and rises not again. Till the heavens are no more, he will not awake or be roused out of his sleep. That's what sight tells us. Sight under the sun. But we walk by faith and not by sight. And even back in Job's time, faith in the character of God the Almighty, in the faithfulness of his God, there's grounds for hope, and so Job pleads for that hope in verse thirteen. Oh, that you would hide me in Sheol in the grave, that you would conceal me under your wrath until your wrath be past, that you would appoint me a set time and then remember me. If a man dies, shall he live again? All the days of my service. I would wait till my renewal should come. You would call, and I would answer you. You would long for the work of your hands. For then you would number my steps. You would not keep watch over my sin. My transgression would be sealed up in a bag, and you would cover over my iniquity. So, the picture of a tree cut off, seemingly dead in the ground, but at the scent of water, it springs again. And that word there in verse 14, till my renewal comes, that's the way it's translated, that's the same Hebrew root as the word for bud or sprout back up there uh, in verse 9. And so the picture is, yes, I'm dead and buried, that seems to be the end of the story, but somehow, mostly mysterious. God will not forget me. And he will finally deal with the sin that is the cause of my death. And I will sprout again like that tree. And so there's that glimpse of resurrection. It's a beautiful passage. And it's a wonderfully comforting passage. Even though remaining silent for the present, seemingly God Remaining silent for the present. Job's hope is that the Almighty, the Lord God, will yet cover his sins, take them away, and then overcome even the finality of death. Intimation of an embodied immortality. That's that city, that's that country, that the saints, the other heroes, remember we wanted to put Job in Hebrews 11, He and the others were anticipating that. But here's Job way, way early, and all he gets is a little glimpse. As we move through the Bible, that light gets brighter and brighter and brighter because in Christ, God has brought life and immortality to light through the good news of the message of Jesus. And notice that it is this hint of resurrection, bodily resurrection, that is the vindication. If God is going to vindicate Job, it has to be by raising him from the dead and everything that must lead up to that. In the face of Satan's slander and his friend's coming accusations, Job's desire is that God would forgive his sin and raise him up on the last day. So here at the midpoint, chapter 14, the midpoint of the great debate, as I've called it, um, which we haven't looked at in detail yet, is the pro- the prospects of such a hope seem way off the map, and yet they are there nevertheless. Job's counselors are relentless, and Yahweh seems silent. He seems absent from the whole thing. Job is flirting with despair, and then comes this bright light. And it's rooted in the character of God and Job's confidence in him. And that takes us then over to um, chapter 19. Chapter 19, verse 23. Job longs for a permanent record of his word. If God is not going to answer him now, maybe he will have to wait. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. Job is confident in the character of God and sometime, if not now, then, whenever then turns out to be, Even though he has to wait, God will hear him and answer him. So again, we have that ray of light. I know that my Redeemer lives, verse 25. And at the last day, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. Whom I shall see for myself, and my eye shall behold, and not another. My heart yearns within me. The Lord God, who is the righteous judge, is also his goel, his redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, the one who will stand in for him. So again, this is all developed. We won't take time with it. You know the bigger story of redemption, substitution. And all of that that is fleshed out in later Revelation. God will stand at the last day upon the earth. And so there's an eschatological hope here, but there's no explanation, no development. It's just, it opens up the light and then it closes up again, and you're back into the debate with Job's friends. However, dimly, Job expresses his hope in a bodily, Resurrection. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God and I shall see Him for myself. Death must come, but there is not only life after death, Job is seeing a life after life after death. Again, our goal so often in our common piety is to go to heaven when we die praise God, that's the promise, but that's the intermediate state. The final state at the return of Christ is resurrection, glorification for us and for the whole of the cosmos. And Job is seeing that day, just like Hebrews 11 doesn't point to the death day of all of those saints, you know, finish your course and die and go to be with the Lord, but they're looking for resurrection as well. We really need to work hard at cultivating more centrally. Uh, One of my few pet peeves with our hymnals is that in the section on resurrection and life everlasting, there's more about going to heaven than there is about resurrection and glorification. And oftentimes the two are conflated into such a complex, confusing amalgamation that you're not really quite sure what you're hoping for. So, that's that's a sidebar, but put your hope not in your death day only when you go to be with the Lord, but in that resurrection day. That's what the whole creation is looking for. And here Job gets a little quick glimpse at it. What Job agonizingly does not experience in his present that is, an open personal communion with the Almighty, he is confident that will be restored to him in the future, in an embodied future. I shall see him for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. Job's hope in the redemptive grace and mercy of the Almighty uh, is tied up then with that idea of finally being vindicated Ultimately, this is the hope of new creation. We have the down payment now in the spirit of Christ, but it is coming as a new heavens and a new earth. When Jesus returns in glory on that day, he will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enabled him even to subject all things to himself. So we can see the full light, although, again, mystery, a lot we don't know, of which Job just had the momentary flashes of insight. Well, what are we to make of this opening speech of Job? I think we can respond to it with sympathy uh, and understanding, on the one hand, and I've tried to stress that already, um, and an appreciation of how little he knew compared to what we now know as heirs of the New Covenant. Uh, Job's pious friends are appalled at Job's speech. Um, You know, what we're afraid of, if we express something that might sound like unbelief, and then we know our Christian friends are going to rebuke us for being so full of unbelief and doubt and fear, Uh, well, that's exactly how they respond to his lamentation, and it, it, it's apparent impiety and unbelief kind of finally kicks off their intervention as they begin to speak to Job in the next uh, section. Bildad is speaking representatively, and he said when he says to Job, "How long will you say these things? And the words of your mouth be a great wind?" So we'll pick up that strand. But for now, think about what you might say. To Job, from your vantage point as an heir of the new covenant, sorrow and pain are real. They do overwhelm often every recollection of blessings and mercies. And we're talking about something deeper here than self pity. Um, and we always have to watch ourselves you know, is my lamentation true and appropriate? Or am I whining and complaining? But we're talking about like huge life crises most of the time before it squeezes out of us the, the, the blood of lamentation. And so we can understand why we or someone else might talk this way, why they might just be, you know, it's like getting hit by a big wave. Maybe you're standing waist deep or next week, neck neck deep in the surf and then the wave hits you and you're spinning around. Eventually you right yourself and you get your feet back on the ground. But in that period of turmoil these are the kinds of things that might well come out of your mouth. They're not words of unbelief. They are words of complaint to the God who you know is there. And whether he answers you or not he hears you. And so we can be sympathetic we can notice how quickly, here's just seven days, we can slip away from a confidence the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, Blessed be the name of the Lord, into this kind of chaotic confusion and distress. Again, that matches our experience, doesn't it? Sometimes your first reaction to a crisis is pretty good. And a little bit later, you start falling apart. A lot of people who have lost loved ones and they hold up pretty well for the first week or so, and then they sink into this kind of confusion and there's lots of things that can contribute to that. But we've all, or most of us, have had that experience. And so we need to take heed to ourselves. The bitterness of Job's complaint is expressed in such powerful poetry. Not only does he fail to see the goodness of God in the land of the living, at least momentarily, but he characterizes the blessings from God, conception, birth, and a life with God as curses. You know, Matthew Henry loves in his commentary to to give us bumper stickers or wall plaques. Anytime you're reading Matthew Henry and he says, note, the next sentence goes on the bumper sticker. It is good to make the best of afflictions but it is not good to make the worst of mercy. Get it? It is good to make the best of afflictions, not good, as Job does here, to make the worst of God's mercies. What we may think and say when we are overwhelmed by pain and sorrow and loss can look a lot like what Job has said here. So, but Job is a faithful servant of the Lord, profoundly shaken. Despite his pain, Job remains guarded in what he is willing to express. Part of what happens over these chapters ahead is he kind of gets worn down and his, his self-control of what he says and what he thinks begins to erode under the pummeling of the accusations of his uh, companions, his so-called counselors. But we know so much more as heirs of the new covenant. And again, you know, you look at the disciples and you think, how could you guys be so dense? And we could look at Job and say, come on, Job. We know how it comes up. Matter of fact, we read the first part of it. So let's go ahead and give Job... Alan asked me this morning, or am I going to be really hard on Job for his lamentation? Am I being too hard on him, Alan? No, no. We, if we've been there, we've been there, and we can express those things. But what consolations we have. Job did not have recourse to the Scriptures. I mean, when Job is living, there's no Bible, no Old Testament, no New Testament. Paul tells us that the comfort of the Scriptures is such a great resource. And we have it, and often we don't use it. We don't take advantage of it. Again, having ministered to sufferers over the years, it's shocking even among Christians how little they go to the Bible for consolation. They just try to pull it up out of themselves. Go to the Scriptures. Use the Scriptures. Read the Scriptures. Let them comfort you so that through endurance and that encouragement you might have hope. Specifically, Job knew nothing yet, even though he talked about a redeemer, a a kinsman redeemer who would represent him in some sense. He had no idea of Jesus, the incarnate God, the suffering God. And the sympathy of that God for us when we suffer? Job is afraid that God is absent. He's certainly silent. But we know God in Jesus Christ, ever present, always speaking to us by his Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So this silent, hidden God of Job is the one that we behold in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, you know this. But again, our familiarity with these privileges, these blessings, can breed contempt, indifference. So when we really need to remember these things, often they slip from our mind. So we have access to the comforts of the Scriptures, knowing in clearer and more comprehensive terms God's purpose in our afflictions. And we've already looked at passages like James where he tells us why we can rejoice even in the face of trials because of God's purpose in them. Just to add a text, Romans 5.3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame or, in some versions, does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. One other passage from James, the fifth chapter, where Job himself is referenced. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord, And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Job has to learn that lesson. We can read about it in the Bible and take it to heart. Lord, we thank you for permission to cry out honestly in our pain. We know you want us to immediately begin to have a conversation with ourselves to put that pain in the context that I've been trying to sketch this morning. But the cry of your people, especially when it's a cry directed to you. Lord, when we are clinging to you for dear life, We're as close to you as we can get. And we thank you for that assurance that though in the moment you may be silent, even when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was no voice from heaven on that occasion. But Jesus could entrust himself to the God who judges justly and know that he would not be put to shame. Even so, Our endurance produces a hope that will not be put to shame. Thank you for giving us a few minutes to contemplate these things, and we do ask, dear God, that they would register deeply in our souls and stay with us, particularly in those times of terrible affliction, to the glory and praise of your name.